the volume. This Sessions is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more than with FanDuel. Why do I love FanDuel? Let me tell you. Because it's America's number one sportsbook. I like facts. I like knowing that they are number one in the space. There's also amazing odds and markets for the NBA, NHL, CBB, and so much more. It's also safe and secure and super quick payouts. You get your winnings delivered as quickly as two hours. It's amazing. So if you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with promo code Renee so that they know that I sent you. Disclaimer, 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Indiana, Louisiana. Permitted parishes only. Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat for Connecticut. 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG for Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, and Virginia. 1-877-770-STOP for Louisiana. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY for New York. Tennessee Redline, 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee, or visit www.1800gambler.net for West Virginia. Hey guys, welcome to the best of the sessions. What we have done is we've combined the best of Tuesday's episode and Thursday's episode, mashed them together to give you a beautiful little audio gift for your ear holes. We have some awesome, awesome guests on the show. Cannot thank people enough for taking the time to, to come hang out with me. Give me a little bit of their time. We give you a little bit of that. We all get to hang out and enjoy it, learn a little bit about each other. Um, so it's really cool to mash these all together and you guys can get those little abbreviated highlights of both of the interviews throughout the week. Also, of course, if you want to listen to the full lengths, you can do that. They all exist. Uh, just make sure to check out all things from the Volume Podcast Network. Like, subscribe, turn on those notifications, all that good stuff. But let's get into it. Here's the best of the sessions. <laughs> How's it going? I'm great. I'm feeling good. I'm glad we finally got this thing going. I know we've been talking about it for a long time, but we're here. We're here. We have arrived. We've got that mojo energy. Yes. I don't really know where to start, so to speak, because when I was doing my research to get ready for this interview, like you're one of those people, and I'll say that this is not the first time that it struck me, because it struck me also when I was doing commentary and doing research on people. You're a fascinating human being. You've done a lot of really crazy things and have like a ton of achievements. I'll be kind of rattling some of those off, but like you're a huge overachiever. What's your deal? I think it all relates to my severe ADHD. I got to be doing 10,000 things at once or I start to like twitch and spaz out. Uh, It's kind of how I seek peace of mind by doing so many things always. How do you unwind? What do you do when you chill out? Uh, I usually go on vacation. I feel like (laughs) even when I'm partying or resting, I'm I'm doing that part pretty big too. So the way I see it, if I'm on the home front, I'm working, I'm I'm setting up all these other things that I've been doing. And when we have a little break, we we go somewhere, see the world. And of course, now I'm recently engaged. So I have someone special to take trips with. So that's very nice. Congratulations. I cannot wait to pick your brain about that. Don't worry. It's on my list. It's on my notes of things that we have to address. Obviously. I mean, what a huge deal. Um, You found the one, you found the lady. 
I was starting to get worried that it wasn't going to happen, that I was going to get caught up in the mojo <laughs> lifestyle forever. And I was going to be alone at 69 years old. And that's not what we want. So, okay, let's just get into it. How did you guys meet? This is actually a fun story because, uh, you know, obviously spent the last 10 years wrestling on the road, constantly partying, doing the thing. And uh, I had a whole bunch of friends in the New England area that were always telling me about this girl. Oh, Gracie Tracy would be perfect for you guys would be a great match. So I didn't really think anything of it, but I would always, uh, you know, DM her or, or text her or something uh, when we were in town. She was living in Nashville at the time for the Nashville shows. And she was like, I am not going to respond to this guy who clearly just wants to party for the night, come to the show, go out to eat, go dancing afterwards. And then what? Like, there's no chance knows? I'm going to be one of those girls. So she she was always very polite, like, oh, good to hear from you. Uh, yeah, let me check the calendar and see if we can make it always turned me down for years. So I kind of respected that. <laughs> yes, of course. She was like, listen, when you want to actually get serious, maybe, but nobody just wants to be that in the town side chick. Pretty much one of my best friends married one of her best friends. And uh, we met at the wedding. And then that was that we met in person. That's all we needed. She saw me on the dance floor. So I was oh able God. to, uh, you know, overwrite everything, any other kind of impression she had of me before. Cause as you know, I'm a fantastic dancer. I know this. I've seen and it. then there you go. We took it, we took it pretty slow in the beginning, very slowly, but surely I was going through a lot of transitions work-wise, health-wise, uh, everything that I've been dealing with starting the new company and then kind of same thing with her on her end. But, uh, you know, things heated up pretty quick. She moved in like four or five months ago, got engaged so what was the moment for you when you're like, she's the one I'm going to propose to her? Because I remember I saw you last summer and you were like, she is the one I'm locked down. This is it. And here we are. So what was that? Something just felt different from like the day I met her, um, just her personality, her energy, the way she carried herself. Of course, I think she's a dime. So that helps too. <laughs> but uh, yeah, just something right away just felt different. You know, I was single for the past, shoot, 10, 11 years or no longer than that, like 13, 14 years, something oh crazy. Wow. So, uh, you know, there wasn't too many close calls along that time, but right away from the start, this thing just felt different. And I kind of wanted to doubt it and give it its time and make sure this was the right fit. Cause you know, I always said my next girlfriend is going to be my wife. There's no question about it. What's the point of casually dating when you're in your mid thirties, if it's not going to work out, it's just a waste sure. of time for everyone sure. involved. So that's why we took it slow. And then eventually we got to the point where it was just like, we can't deny this anymore. We need to uh, get this moving with a hurry and everything's moved super fast. Gosh, so cool. How do you stay single for 13 to 14 years? Like that's crazy. How is that even possible? Well, probably because I was in a relationship for the 13, 14 years straight before that. <laughs> so that's okay. So wait, what is the deal with that? Because you were in a really long-term relationship from when you were really young, right? This is all kind of jogging my memory. I forgot about this. But yeah, what happened? I was with my ex-girlfriend. We started dating when we were 11. We were in like seventh grade, I think. And, you know, we did like the, the kind of grade school thing where you break up 10,000 times and get right back together. But yeah. 
we were together all the way through shortly after my NFL career ended um, when I had that injury. So, uh, you know, on and off, I never partied. I never drank. I never went out. I didn't do any of these things. I was kind of still the same guy. I just, instead of partying until the wee hours of the night, I was studying and doing my work and doing extra workouts and conditioning with that time instead. So, um, which also was too much because I used to get hurt a lot because of it. But <laughs> I guess when I finally became single at like 23, 24, it was like, man, there is a whole nother fun world here that I can partake <laughs> in. I was not playing football at the time either. So I was like, wow, I have no excuse now to not go out and have fun. I don't have to wake up for a training session or have like a season to prepare for. Like I got nothing right now. So yeah. let's go have some fun. And that's kind of when Mojo was born. <laughs> Okay, let's get into your COVID issues. Um, I feel, I mean, you just spoke about this not all that long ago. You mentioned on your Instagram, this was a huge thing for you. This was a long-term battle that you had since having COVID. What all happened? Yeah, so pretty much I ended up getting it and uh, I got rocked pretty hard by it. The first few days weren't so bad. It was just kind of like the on and off kind of spotty fever kind of thing, like the chills and whatnot. I think like most people get it. And then I'm not sure what happened from there. Myself, the doctors, we have a couple of hunches, but things kind of spun out of control. My fever spiked to 104. I was overheating. Um, it was so crazy. I remember taking an ice cold shower, trying to get my body temp down. And like the freezing cold water would touch the top of my head. And by the time it got down to my neck, it was like boiling hot. Oh. I was like, that's crazy that just this amount of distance was causing water, freezing water to boil. So I went into the hospital. Uh, they checked me out. They took my temperature. They really didn't have anything for me to do but sit in a cold room by myself to bring my fever down. But after that, I just started developing... Um, this cough and these breathing issues, I was coughing so bad that the blood vessels in my eyes burst. So like my eyes were bloodshot, looked insane. Uh, of course, as a wrestler, the first thing I wanted to do was start taking pictures to I document know. it like we do. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I just couldn't breathe. I couldn't get a full breath in. I'd get like these little half breaths where the air would kind of get to here and it would stop before it gets up to a place you can actually really get it in. So um, couldn't lay on my back, couldn't lay on my side. I couldn't wear t-shirts uh, because it would suffocate me. That extra pressure on my lungs was just awful. Uh, I had to like learn to sleep sitting forward in a chair, which I already am like the world's worst sleeper. So these things didn't help. I was like having to take like NyQuil and all these like melatonin, all, all these sleep aids combined together just to kind of pass out just for a little bit. But certain days it got so bad I couldn't speak. I just couldn't get enough air in to talk. And it was like every breath for weeks, months was an active process, something that I had to actively do. And it was, it was scary because I kept seeing the doctors and everyone was like, this is, this is brand new. We don't know what to tell you. We, we don't know how to treat this. Uh, we can clearly see that your, your lungs are bad. I went to the pulmonologist one day and they put me in this little cubicle and I did like this breathing exam. And um, I remember afterwards on the way into the pulmonologist, I saw like this 90 year old woman hobbling out on like a walker. 
And the doctor goes, uh, Hey, did you by chance see that older woman that walked out when you got here? I was like, yeah. And she, he goes, uh, her lung strength is triple what yours is right now after this test. And I was like, Oh, oh my, my goodness. Gosh. So it was literally over a year of going to the docs every couple of weeks, every month, them testing me, me failing miserably and just going back home. Like, I guess hopefully time will heal this and we'll go from there. Um, don't get me wrong. The kind of crazy part too was some days I felt more or less fine. The only time I would notice is if I worked out and I really tried to push it, then I could feel like I, I just can't get the air in like I used to. But yeah. that kind of was the frustrating part was I, I tried everything. You know, what was causing me to have good days and bad days? Was it working out too hard? Was it like some sort of congestion or allergies? And mm -hmm. we still to this day have no idea. Like just sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad and no one can tell why. Mentally, what was that like for you? Because I know, I mean, I had it obviously not to the degree that you had it, but I had it and I had all the symptoms and, you know, all that stuff. But I had it so early on that I remember like the mental warfare that went down where I was like, I don't know what's happening. Nobody else really seems to know what's happening. I never went to a doctor with mine. I was just like at home kind of self-quarantining on like the upper level. John was downstairs. Um, and just trying to make the most of it I and mean, using any kind of anti-inflammatory stuff that I could find. Uh, I found some stuff on like Amazon, these like other like breathing pills. I'm like, give me all of the stuff. But when you don't know what you need and nobody has the answers and it's all so new, but I mean, for you to have it with the severity that you did, what did that do to you mentally? Probably the scariest part for a little bit of this was when the breathing was bad, it was scary to go to sleep because I was worried that I might not wake up. You know, I might suffocate myself in my sleep, especially with how tired I was getting at points because I literally wasn't sleeping. You know, I was worried I was just going to pass out and that that might be it. You know, so there there was that fear for a little bit. Um, now thinking kind of professionally and about where my life was headed. It's like, all right, well, I've been with WWE for 10 years. We're doing mass firings left and right. You know, there seems to be not necessarily a rhyme or reason for it. Yeah. I got to get my ass back to work or else I'm going to be in the next group. You know, like I got to yeah. go back and prove my worth and show them why I should still have a contract. And I just was not in a position to, to do that. And then part of me, too, was like, I don't want to go back until I'm ready because if I go out there and my, my lungs give out in a match and I'm, I'm dragging it and my whole thing is I stay hyped and I'm the hype man. I got all the energy. Now I'm the guy You'd that be gets blown, blown up by the time you got to the ring. Oh my God. Exactly. So I was like, I, I don't know what's better to, to try and go back with them knowing that I'm recovering just to do something or to wait until I'm a hundred and then get back to business as usual. I remember kind of pitching Hey, what if I was someone's hype man, a manager role, a bodyguard, you know, commentary, announcing anything, shoot, send me to the corporate office and let me use my business degrees and let yeah. me essentially do what I'm doing now for you guys. But, uh, you know, and I, I agree with them on this. It was, we decided it was better to just stay home until I was ready. What was the point of, of rushing it and, you know, maybe making me worse or taking step back to, uh, you yeah. know, try and take one step forward. It just wasn't worth it. So there was just kind of, all these things going through my head. And it was just like, I don't know what to do. I mean, it's like, I'm, I'm lost. I, I have no idea how to handle this. Did you go back at all before you guys parted ways, you and WWE parted ways? 
No. So my last match with Chad Gable uh, was my last time at work. Aside, I think, from maybe later that week going in for testing or, or something to that extent, that, that was it right then and there. So, okay, so you had that downtime. I mean, you know, trying to figure out what you're going to do, get your body right, all those things. But you have been very busy. Now you've got a gig with TMZ. You've started the Paragon Talent Group. Shout out to Paragon. Hey! (laughs) Um, How did everything come together with TMZ? TMZ was actually really funny. So, uh, truthfully, I've been going on TMZ here and there for years. And when they first called me, In the beginning, I was like, shoot, this is TMZ. This is big coverage. This is mainstream stuff. Hell yeah, of course I'll go on TMZ. After that, you know, every time, you know, they would call and maybe it was a situation where it was like, I'm a little worried to comment on this topic in case it gets me heat in the (laughs) locker room or with friends. Either way, I always said yes, because at that time, part of me was like, I think it's a better idea to be on really good terms with TMZ in case. God forbid something happens to me, they can control the narrative here a little bit better and and help me out. But they were always super respectful, super fun, made life very easy for me. I always got along with the host uh, when they would when they would call me up. So actually, right after my release, I, I got a call. TMZ was the first interview I did after after WWE. Harvey Levin, you know, the founder, called me. And he was like, hey, I'd love to chat about you coming to work for us. And I was like, oh, yeah, very interesting stuff. And he said, that's actually one of the reasons we've had you on over the years. It wasn't only just to hear your stories and have you talk about, you know, the, the headlines. It was kind of like an audition process because we knew we wanted to hire you as soon as you became available. So I was like, oh, wow. Awesome. That, that, yeah, that made me feel great. So. Yeah. Um, we did some stuff with them there. And then I think, you know, Fox ended up buying TMZ, which just made things even better for everybody. So yeah, yeah, that was just an easy, easy fit. I've been doing that every day, having the time of my life with it. It's been, it's been awesome. And for me, you know, I kind of went in with the mission and this was actually probably one of our founding principles for, for Paragon, the talent group was this was kind of an opportunity to have the world of professional wrestling have a regular seat and a regular feature on, you know, mainstream news to mainstream audiences, which I think personally is something that we've really, really lost, you know, over the years and continue to lose by the year. So it was kind of like a two for one special. It all made sense. And yeah, it's been great. Hell yes. Okay. So Paragon, how did this idea come about that that was a thing that you wanted to launch and, uh, and bring on some really great talent. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's um that was cool because one, you know, now that I was uh, you know, available again, I was no longer under the, you know, the WWE contract. Now we can do all these third-party deals and now we have complete control over the brands we work with, the deals that we negotiate. So I kind of selfishly broke open my Rolodex and was like, all right, time to go to work. We got to, we got to pay the bills. You know, I don't have the salary coming in anymore. Um, And I kind of found this even while uh, I was with WWE, when I was able to navigate these waters sometimes, but a lot of these brands want to work with just more than one person. They want to work with multiple people that are friends that can collaborate, that can put their heads together and market, you know, each other's deliverables. So that opportunity presented itself a little bit. 
And then talking to all my friends that were recently released, seeing these people that were literally former champions with millions of followers, with immediately identifiable global brands, and they have no idea what to do next. And they don't know where their paycheck was. And some of them weren't on the main roster long enough to be able to afford like a little time off before they went back to work. They needed to find out where their next meal was coming from. So I had the brands looking for people. We, We had the talent that were looking for the brands. So it was like, shoot, let me use this business degree I paid so much money for and kind of be the the conduit here. So we called Steve K, which is uh, one of my best friends. He was the talent booker for the hard rock in in Vegas. And, you know, we kind of started this thing together and uh, man, it's been going great. We signed 30 people off the bat. We wanted to start with 10, but I just couldn't say no to (laughs) to any of my buddies. (laughs) That part's been a little stressful because it's like, man, we have all these people counting on us. There's only two of us, you know, yeah. some of these deals take weeks and months to, to set up. It's like, man, we gotta, we gotta be on this nonstop. So we're taking 10, 20 calls each and every oh single day pitching people. And, you know, it's been, it has been kind of fun because these brands really have no idea what they're buying whatsoever. They have no idea what professional wrestlers can bring to the table and why it's better to do business with our guys than NFL players and NBA players where they're just one of many on the team under a helmet, you know, that don't have their own brands and they don't know how to cut a promo and things like that. So it's just been great. It's taken off faster than we could have imagined. And we've all been thrilled with how it's been going. Hey guys, if you're here listening to the sessions, thank you. Hello. Hi. And you love some combat sports? Well, be sure to check out Boxing with Chris Mannix. It's every Friday as he talks with the biggest names in boxing, UFC, and yes, even the occasional wrestling superstar. Chris is one of the most passionate and influential voices in the sport, and he's here every week to help you get smarter on all things boxing. He'll also help you win some money on FanDuel with his weekly betting segment where he breaks down the best bets for all the big fights. Download Boxing with Chris Mannix only here on the Volume Podcast Network. I'm so excited to have you on. You know, you and I were talking um, while you were on your way to Nashville, going to see our girl, Casey Musgraves. Oh, it was so awesome. Oh, my god! Was gosh. it everything you wanted it to be? And I think... That I was the only straight person in the crowd, and I loved it. <laughs> yes, Queen. We got like an extra wristband or something. I was surrounded by like girls and gays, and I was like, yeah, this is my scene. <laughs> my people. It was a lot of fun. She's so incredible. Here's my question, though. What did you wear? Did you put on like a fancy Casey Musgraves outfit? Because she really brings the fashion, and I feel like if you wanted to throw in a tassel, maybe a sequin, that would have been the, the setting for it. I just wore jeans and a, a t-shirt, I think. Maria, she dressed up for sure. She wore like the Reba jacket with the tassels and I had to take like seven boomerangs of her. How was it being, like that was your guys' first trip away in like eight years, you said. How was it? You know, she's gone to WrestleMania with me and she's, you know, done some of those things. But like, you know, at WrestleMania, you still have signings and, you know, matches and stuff like that. So we've been away before, but we've never had uh, time by herself. She's there she is. I definitely would like Maria to come be a part of this because I want to know about the romance. 
we can talk about wrestling and blah, blah, blah. We'll get to some of that stuff. But like, I love the family stuff. I love knowing about like you as a human being. And I know family is obviously such an important thing to you. You are like that dude that I feel like the show ends and you are hightailing it out of there to get back home. Has it always been that way for you? Uh, yeah, uh, for, for WWE, for sure. Like, I always felt guilty at WWE because I was gone so much. So I would always find the earliest flights out. Whether I had sleep or not, I wanted. I still do find the earliest flights out because I wanted to get home because, like, it's cool to be able to take care of them through my dream and, and make this money and stuff like that. But then we only know, or at least then, she only knew that daddy wasn't home, you know? And I could tell her a million times well, I'm going to work so, you know, you can stay here with mom or so we can have this house or whatever. I could tell her that a million times, but still, all she knows is daddy's leaving again. But yeah, just Wednesday night, as soon as I was finished filming, I changed my flight to an 8 p.m. flight and flew home. I don't know. It's just, I know how lucky I am and how fortunate I am to have what I have in her. When we first met, um, I was in college but I was paying for my own college. So I had like three jobs, two or three jobs at a time. And one job was opening up a vitamin store where I would go all day. And I'd leave that job and go to my next job, which was a DJ at nighttime. And like, she always was so supportive. She never complained, you know, 18 credit hours of school and three jobs and wrestling. My job until 3 a.m., I was surrounded by girls and she never, ever questioned me, never cared. You know what I mean? I never bothered her. She's been prepped for this life, but man, she's never once complained. How did you guys meet? What's the origin story? Who swooned who? Her best friend worked with me at the, the club downtown. She was the door girl. And um, one day Maria came in and that's how we met. Then me and my buddies went out a couple of, I don't know, weeks later. And uh, I saw her roommate at a bar and she was uh, inebriated. And it was only like 5 p.m. And I was like, hey, let's, I'll take you home. She lived with Maria. Maria was there. She had literally just broken up with her boyfriend. And I was like, hey, we're going to go out if you'd like to come with us. And she said, you know what? I'm going to come with you. And so she comes with us. And we go out downtown. We have fun. And uh, long story short, I courted her for like six months. And she said no. I was figuring shit out. I said, okay, well, look, I love you so much that it's, this was like in December. I was like, it's either 0% or 100%. That was my exact words. And she said, okay, it's 0%. So you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> she moved back to Hendersonville, uh, where, which is kind of where we live now. And um, I was still in uh, Wilmington, where I was going to college or where I finished college. She called me one day and she was driving back and she said, I can't live without you. I love you so much. Driving four hours, five hours from, Hendersonville to Wilmington just to come and tell me she loved me. And she came in the door and we embraced. Yeah. And he said, all right, well, I've got to go back home. And so she left right after that. And but then I moved back. And then she moved back. Yeah. And we moved in with each other like. Almost immediately. And, yeah. Oh my God. How long ago was that? How long have you guys been together? 13 years. Oh my God. Very impressive. Maria, did you know what you were getting into? I mean, when this relationship started, I mean, you know, he talks about your patience and your trust in him and now this journey that you guys have been on and like through thick and thin. I mean, as we sign up for when we say those vows. Initially, when he told me that he wrestled, I was like, well, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> we'll see. And, you know, and then I went to one of his first shows. It was at like an armory. Oh, or my gosh. First show she ever went to. And I was like, holy shit, Like this is real deal. Like he's serious and he's really talented. 
And so then, you know, and he always talked about wanting to get signed somewhere and that kind of thing. We got engaged at the end of 2010 and we scheduled our, our uh, wedding date as uh, September the 16th. 2012, we scheduled to, to get married and like Canyon Seaman, he called and he was like, okay, we're going to offer this contract. <laughs> this is the start date. I was like, oh man, that's the day after my wedding. We have a honeymoon scheduled. Can I please have you know some time off? Oh yeah, that's not a problem. We'll, we'll make sure to get that to you. So he calls me a week before my wedding. He says, I just want to make sure everything's in place. You're good to go. Yes, sir. I can't wait. Good to go. I said, okay, so you'll be starting on September the 17th. I said, oh man, you remember you, you told me I could have two weeks off on my honeymoon. He said, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Uh, how is a day? And I was like, oh my God, this is my first, my only break. And so I was like, yeah, I, I, let me talk to my wife. And so I asked her and her exact words were, I don't care what we do as long as we get married. I was like, oh, oh my God. But yeah, we got married on the 16th uh, and drove on the 17th and started on the 18th. It is funny how that happens because like when John and I got married, I mean, we just like, we knew that we were going to get married, that we had been in Reno. I was with them at live events and we were like, just like in the town, like a little bit hungover, walking around. We're like, let's go to the courthouse and get our marriage license because we're in the state of Nevada. That way we know we want to get married. We can just do it and call it a day. So, of course, six months after that, it's like burning a hole in my pocket. I'm like, are we going to do this or like what? So we ended up getting married. Um, but yeah, we had to wait. Oh, I guess probably well, at least six months, I would say, until we finally got to go on our honeymoon. I mean, you know, the way that schedules, it's like impossible to actually get proper time off and depending on what your storyline is and what's going on and blah, blah, blah. Um, So, yeah, we're kind of just along for the ride. You talked about WWE and having that big break. What were like the moments prior to that and actually having that opportunity come to fruition for you? It's one of those things where, you know, you hear someone say, you just don't care anymore and it'll happen. I got an opportunity to go to Japan and I went to Japan and worked for like a month or a month and a half or something. And um, while I was over in Japan, I said, you know what? I'm going to quit wrestling. Uh, I'm going to quit wrestling, use my degree, get a real job. I just want to be with her. And I want to take care of her for the rest of my life. And so I was going to quit wrestling at the end of that year. And I don't know how, but Regal got some of my footage and he found out about me and he called me and asked me to come do an extra spot. And I did. Funny enough, uh, it was the first time I'd ever really, I mean, we had met before, but we had never like conversed with, with cash. And we met there and they put us in the ring together and they said, we don't know how long you're, you're going to go. We'll just tell you when to stop or when to wrap it up, but just keep going until. So the first two matches went and we didn't, even, me and Dan, we didn't even have time to talk about anything. But first two matches went and um, they cut the guys off after two minutes or four minutes or whatever. So we got in the ring and we just started going. And then we kept going and going and going. And they never stopped. And Scott Armstrong was like, keep going. They love it. Keep going. And we went like 15 minutes. And um, finally, we, you know, we wrapped it up, went home. And right after that, I got the, the contract and <laughs> signed it for less money than I was making at my real job. So we picked up everything and left and went there. It is like crazy though, that like journey of, you know, finally making that thing come together. And I mean, look at, I mean, it's, it's really inspiring to see like what you guys were able to do in WWE. Now what you guys are doing in AEW. Um, what about that moment of you guys wanting to bet on yourselves and for you to leave WWE and look for another opportunity? Cause you guys didn't know that you guys weren't going straight to AEW when you asked for your releases. Money is, is incredible. 
But I talked to my grandma and I was like, you know, telling her my issues. I was like, I'm just not happy, but the money is great, blah, blah, blah. And her exact words to me were, how much money do you really need? I was like, oh my God, that was like such an eye-opening experience for me. You know, I'm college educated and, you know, two degrees and stuff like that. And so I was like, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And we just, I don't know, it, it's, sounds like I'm bitter, but I'm not at all. We just weren't happy. Not just us, but they were not giving any of the tag teams the opportunities we thought that it deserved. And we knew we would be stuck at a certain position if we stayed there. And um, man, for years and years and years and years, like since I can remember, I have prayed every single night to be a professional wrestler. And um, I take it very, very seriously. And knowing that they weren't going to give us the opportunities um, that we thought we, we deserved. I knew we just had to, to get out of there and, and make a name for ourselves. So we talked about it and they kept throwing more money at us, more and more money. I called my wife and I told her, I said, hey, this is the amount of money they offered us. I don't think we're going to take it. And she said, no money is worth your happiness. Do what you want. I said, oh my gosh, okay. And so we went back and told them no. And my wife was having health problems. So I told them like, look, not only do I not want to stay, I want to be home more with my wife. This is obviously before the pandemic. And then the pandemic hit, they called us and they said, look, we know you want out. Your contracts are up in you know, two months or whatever, but Dave, we're going to extend your contract because of your injury until August. But the out is all these trademarks you have. If you sign them over to us, we will let you have your release. No 90 days. and We'll give it to you today. We had spent like ten or twenty thousand dollars on trademarks, like FTR, Shadow Machine, uh, No Flips, Just Fist, all this stuff. Stuff that we came up with, not them. But we were like, you know what? We want out so bad. We're just unhappy. Uh, just let them have it. It's just money. They called back and said, you can have all the trademarks. Just please give us our release, and they did. Wow. So what was the time in between like for you guys while you were waiting to see what the opportunities were going to look like, either on the indie scene or what was going to happen with AEW? Almost immediately after release. I mean, you know, we had had talks with Cody and and through Cody, we had, had talks with Tony. So from the time that we asked for a release to the year later, we knew there was an opportunity for us. So we weren't worried or anything, but um, it was kind of scary because the pandemic had just hit. Uh, we were just so, um, so unhappy. Uh, and I never wanted to get to the point where I wasn't happy and bringing it home. Yeah, no doubt. I know when you're so passionate about something, you got to kind of find a way to still keep that light and fun and to still enjoy that. Because as soon as that's gone, it gets rough out there for sure. Um, okay, so before college, in high school, I know that you've talked about this before, but I'm not sure how in-depth you've gone with it, but you suffered from bulimia. What was that like experience like for you? Like, How did that start? So it was right after high school. Um, actually, I got out of high school. So I, was, I played high school football and, you know, I was just, you know, eating whatever because I was a lineman. So I was trying to get, you know, big. And I got to like, I don't know, 285 pounds. I'd always been a big kid, but I just got really, really, really big. And then I continued to eat that way as a lineman after high school. And so without that extra physical activity, I just put on so much weight and uh, I was embarrassed and um, I was just ashamed. And I uh, had a buddy who moved in with me and my dad, I don't know, maybe a year before that, because um, he had some family problems at home and he'd come live with us. And uh, he was overweight too. 
one day I called him doing it outside. And I was like, hey, what, what the fuck are you doing? And he said, I'm so sorry, man, but you know this. And I said, well, why are you doing it? Well, to help me lose weight. I said, oh. I said, does it work? He said, well, I went from this weight to this weight. I started doing it too. And um, working out and trying to get in the best shape, you know, for wrestling um, or for wrestling school. Again, something that became routine. Addiction's never been a problem for me. So thankfully, I was able to just stop. But uh, it, it got really bad to a point like I was every single day at the end of the day, I would go outside and just so my dad couldn't hear me and I would just throw up. What did that do to your body doing that for that period of time? Like, did it exhaust you or like, like what were sort of the ramifications of that? It was very scary when I realized like, I can't go a day without doing this. Uh, the, the body dysmorphia, like how I viewed myself and how embarrassed I was of myself. And then I was embarrassed of what I was doing, you know, and then it would just become this cycle thing because um, I was thinking, okay, well, if I can get to this weight, I'll stop, you know, and then I could not be embarrassed about anything. I would lose the weight, but the body dysmorphia would never go away because one, because you've got it stuck in your head. But two, like when you're doing that, you're not getting any nutrients in your body. So as hard as I was working out, I was never building any muscle mass. So I got, you know, what's called skinny fat. My body would get, I don't know, to my, my opinion, I would look worse than when I was actually heavy. So more than like physically, it just wrecked me mentally. So you've mentioned body dysmorphia a few times. And it's funny because I, I like you and I were talking prior to this and I just, I can't imagine somebody kind of not having body dysmorphia to some degree. Like, I feel like I never know what I look like. I can never tell if I'm like, Am I fat? Am I athletic? Am I skinny? Like, I just have no concept of what I look like sometimes. I'm like, do other people feel that way? Like, they must. I, I don't know. I find it, it's very confusing. When did that start to happen for you to have that, that body dysmorphia kind of kick in? Right after football. I mean, and I did, I gained a lot of weight. And so I would wear the same clothes that I had and they were like super tight, but I was too like prideful to go buy bigger clothes. And so I'd myself in a mirror and I, I think, oh my gosh, what, what's going on with me? And, and I had no, I mean, I'm from a very small town in North Carolina, you know, and so we're not the most health conscious in that little bitty town. And so I had no clue about like carbs and fats and nutrition and things like that. I just ate to eat. That's when I started like experiencing the body dysmorphia. I never had it in high school. I would get called fat in high school, but like that never, ever bothered me. But like right after high school, it was, I don't know, it got really, really bad. And that's when I started um, experiencing the, the, the middle body dysmorphia. So now I've, I've gone from this 280 pound, almost 300 pound fat guy. I, I've lost all this weight. And so now I have this uh, excess skin that hangs, you know, as disgusting as it sounds. I hate even talking about it, but like I have this excess skin around my belly um, that I have to have surgery to get rid of. But, you know, with our schedule, we can't do that. And I get on social media as well. And then, you, you know, people see me in my trunks and, you know, they don't know what I've been through, what I've, what happened or they, they just, you know, see this and I'm like, oh my God, how can this, you know, he looks like this. No wonder he's, you know, not in the main event or whatever, you know, you read that stuff and, you know, no one knows. They don't know how much they're affecting a person. 
I can let most of it slide off my back, but then some days it's like waking up every morning, I'm doing this fasting thing. I'm, you know, busting my ass in the gym. I'm trying to eat right. I'm working as hard as I can in the ring. You know, I'm, I'm trying to be the best wrestler in the world. That's my, that's what I want to do. And sometimes I think I'm doing that just so you ignore the fact that I don't have the best body. So it's, uh, you know, it's a never ending cycle, especially on social media. It's so crazy. Just like how hard people are on other people about their bodies. Like as if like we shouldn't all just be applauding you for the work that you have done to be healthy and to get your body to where it is. But to imagine like, well, okay, you did this one thing. Why can we not have it be absolutely perfect? It's such a weird expectation that we put on other people or that other people put on you. It's such a vicious cycle. It's so crazy. Instead of being like, holy shit, you did this thing. Like, hell yeah. Like how inspirational to other people that could be in that situation, trying to lose that weight and trying to get, you know, the health side of it more than anything. But this aesthetic side of it that comes with it that's so vicious. I've never understood it. And I try to make sure that I teach my daughter not to be that way. But also, I, I don't want her to know how regimented I try to be on my nutrition and my food. I don't want her to know either because I don't want her to have that expectation that she has to grow up and do the same thing. Besides the shitty people that are in the business, that's the main reason I don't want her to be a wrestler is because I don't want her to have to go through that. Like the bumps and the bruises and stuff, you know, whatever. But like dealing with self-image and, and, you know, how you have to meet people's expectations, I never, I mean, she's going to have to, but I never want her to, to think about that or go through that. That's one of those things I find, um, I mean, I have a daughter as well. She's only eight months, but those are the things that you think about and the, the society that we're bringing our kids up in. Like, I think all the time, if I have my like phone out, if she were to see like the filters that we put on our faces for her to feel like, oh, just her regular beautiful face is not enough. And we need to add this contour. We need to have our nose thinned out or our lips plumped a little bit more like that shit just rattles my brain. And I can't imagine a kid growing up like that because we didn't have to grow up like that. We weren't under the microscope in that way. We didn't strive for this perfection the way that kids do now. It's such a scary thing to imagine with a daughter. Um, okay. So on a different note entirely, you have struggled with some anxiety. Is it something you're still kind of going through or is this something you've overcome to a degree? Dude, I don't know if you ever overcome, you know, but again, I'm so new to it. I don't know. Uh, I, I think I still struggle with it. You and I had talked about this before. Like my anxiety is different than what yours is. Mine truly stems from like really bad, like claustrophobia. Going into like a lavatory on a plane is my fucking nightmare. No, thank you. Or like being stuck in, in like an elevator or something that makes me like, it makes me start to sweat even to talk about it. I can't even think about it, but that's the kind of anxiety that I get. And it sprung from one specific moment. But for you, what was sort of the tipping point that made this all kind of unfold? It was June the 5th. I was, we were in, um, we were in Jacksonville, Florida. I was in a hotel room. I just couldn't go to sleep. I didn't sleep at all. And I was at like, calling Marie. I was freaking out. It was like six in the morning and I'm walking around the hotel outside. I'd never experienced this before in my life. And so I'm, I'm freaking out and I finally uh, get back to my room and I fall asleep for like two hours at like seven in the morning and I wake up and I call her and I was like, oh my God, I, you know, 
last night I was freaking out. I couldn't sleep. And, you know, was, my heart was racing. I didn't know what was going on. The night came again and I couldn't go to sleep again. And so I was like, okay, God, what the, I don't, I don't know what's going on. I can't sleep. I think I slept maybe that night, maybe three hours. And so I was like, okay, I just want to go home. I'm going to get home. Things will be so much better. I'll be in my, my safe space at home. Got home. I jumped in bed and I was like, babe, I don't know what's going on. This is freaking me out, but you know, whatever. And so I lay in bed and I don't know, a jolt went through my brain and I could not cut it off and I couldn't close my eyes. And my heart was racing throughout the next few weeks. I called like four doctors, you know, and I'm so lucky that we work for the company we work for because I was able to talk to Doc Sampson day and night. I don't know if you remember um, Dr. DeQuino from WWE. But he was a friend of mine on Facebook and he saw that I was going through some issues with sleeping because I posted on Facebook, like, has anybody ever had insomnia? Because I think I have it. And he called me and dude, day and night, again, he would answer my texts or call me or whatever. That was the, the tipping point. Through therapy, I found out this is something that's been going on for a while. In terms of it going on for a while, it was just something that was like kind of building and building and then you, you broke. Through talking with my therapist for a couple of months, that's what we found out. I don't know, when I found out where the issue came from, it almost like freed me a little bit. And that sounds kind of corny, but like it did, it almost freed me. Can you say what it was that was sort of like the seedling for it? Maria had a miscarriage. Me and her and Finley, we, we still lived in Orlando and we were going to the mall and she hadn't felt good all day. And she was like, I just, I don't, I don't feel, I don't feel right, but let's just go to the mall. And she kept like telling me how she didn't feel right. And I said, you know what, let's go to the hospital or let's go to the doctor or whatever it was. And uh, let's get you checked out so you don't, you know, you're not worried about it. And then we'll go on about our day. So we went there, she checked in and she sat down and they, they said, uh, Maria Harwood. And as soon as she stood up, she lost everything. And uh, she ran to the bathroom and I followed her in there. And uh, she had our little, little, little tiny baby in her hand. She is so broken. And she was so worried and so upset and so scared and so embarrassed, all these other emotions she was going through. So like I had to be strong for her. So I didn't want her to see me worried or upset, you know, because she had so much to worry about. So I hit all that stuff. When I would drive to, when I would drive to the performance center or whatever, I would break down almost every day. It was one of these things where I'd break down and I would question God because I had and I do now have a relationship with God. But I questioned, I said, God, why? You know, why did you do this to us? And just give me an answer. And I never was mad or angry, but, but I just wanted to know why this happened to us. And I think what happened was so much stuff just piled up and I lost it. Thanks so much for hanging out with us, guys. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed the week. Enjoyed the best of the sessions. You guys can hear the full-length interviews um, anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Just uh, download them, give them a listen, give them a like, a review. And if you want to see what you're hearing, head on over to my YouTube page. Just search Renee Paquette. It's all up there, and you can see us talking, having this interview, having a hangout. It's all up on there, um, and that's been like a really great, cool, growing community. So uh, I'm really enjoying the hangouts on the YouTube as well. So we can see you guys over there and jump in the comment section, you know, jump in, chime in, leave a comment. Uh, we like filtering through them all, reading about them, maybe even like, I don't know, some constructive criticism. If you had it, we're all ears. God, did I open up a can of worms by saying that? I don't know. Be nice. Be cool in there. This has been the sessions. The sessions.